You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. If you are one of those people who thrive on certainty, who breathes a sigh of relief when the rules of the game are clear, this past year has been excruciating. A year and a half ago, a new strain of coronavirus emerged, and immediately researchers and scientists were on a race to understand the virus, how deadly it was, how it was transmitted, and who was most vulnerable. And methods of prevention and treatment were moving targets as data and research grew. Did the virus spread on surfaces? How about person to person? There was so much that we didn't know. And so we upped our hand washing game, which is always a good practice. And we sanitized surfaces, now in retrospect, perhaps more than necessary, since we know now that the virus transmits most effectively by aerosols and droplets. But we were living the scientific method in real time, learning to adjust our behaviors as more information was acquired. And just this week, this weekend, the guidance has been adjusted again as the research is showing that aerosols are the primary means of transmission, which only serves to underscore the need for proper ventilation indoors and for mask wearing appropriately. The changing guidelines have been used by some to argue that the medical experts just don't know what they're doing. And some critiques are at best short-sighted or in some cases quite disingenuous. If anything, I think it takes courage and wisdom to say our recommendations were based on the very best information we had, and now that we have more data, that leads us to adjust the guidelines to reflect the new understanding. Back in 1939, the editors of the Christian Century magazine asked prominent theologians to write essays on the topic how my mind has changed. It had been a challenging decade living through the hardships of the Great Depression. Nations were struggling with the rise of fascism in Europe, and there was rumblings of another world war spreading. So they asked some legendary thinkers, notably Karl Barth, who reflected on his own German church experience and its dangerous heresy of blending Christianity and Germanism. Bart refused to begin his lectures with a salutation to Hitler and would not swear an unconditional oath of allegiance to him, and so he was ultimately deported to his homeland of Switzerland. In another essay, Reinhold Niebuhr described his turn away from classical liberalism. In 1981, another rendition of the series, 
offered us one of my favorite theologians, Langan Gilkey, who would adjust the title to how my mind is changing. Theology for a time of troubles. And in it, Gilkey addressed secularism, the environmental crises, the decline of Western dominance, and the challenges of interfaith dialogue, all issues that continue to confront us today. In that same edition, one of the mothers of feminist theology, Rosemary Radford Ruther, reflecting on her own Catholic tradition and its historic justification of slavery and sexism, quipped, quote, infallibility means never having to say you're sorry. It's a powerful question. How might you respond if asked how my mind has changed? Where would you begin to answer that question? Would there be monumental shifts you would describe, or would it be small changes? What experiences pushed you in different directions? In politics, it's often an effective critique to point out the inconsistencies in a politician's voting record or stances on issues. Oh, they're wishy-washy, the opponents may charge. Read my lips, no new taxes, was the fateful pledge of George H.W. Bush in 1988. And the reason for his change on that issue didn't matter. It was the perception of a broken promise that was more compelling and a contributing cause to his reelection defeat. Our reading from Acts 10 drops us into a moment when certainty is challenged and minds are changed. We listen to the very end of Peter's encounter with the Roman centurion Cornelius, and the writer tells us, quote, while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. While Peter was still speaking. I love that little detail. The Spirit interrupts Peter in mid-sentence, and it seems to me one of those moments which changes the course of his life yet again. So let's go back a little earlier in the story. In chapter 10, Peter has made his way to the town of Joppa, and he's staying in a house by the seashore at the home of Simon the Tanner, and it's noon. It's nearly lunchtime, and Peter's gone up to the roof to pray, the story says. Perhaps he's gone up there to escape the less-than-desirable smells of a tanner's profession. But let's be honest, it's noon, and I'm guessing he's a little bit hungry, too. But lunch isn't quite ready yet, and so he's on the roof with a nice breeze, the smell of the salt air, and a good view of the water. And there... Peter begins to doze off, drifting back and forth in that delicious in-between existence when you're neither fully awake or completely asleep. And Acts tells us that Peter has a vision while he's up on the roof, but I wonder what might else have crossed his mind while he was there. So I would invite you to imagine with me, if you will, that the water and the sun and the smells of the sea are reminding him of home. So far away in Bethsaida, along that much smaller Sea of Galilee, and then later in Capernaum as he became a follower of Jesus. 
The Peter of Bethsaida was a tradesman, working long shifts, overseeing workers, content where he was with his life. And all of that, suddenly, without warning, was upended by an unorthodox call by Jesus who said, Come with me, and I will make you fish for people. And with that, with those words, his normal, nondescript life was forever interrupted, and his old ways of thinking began shifting into a new reality of following Jesus. Perhaps the smell of salt water, is car- that small salt water carried by the wind keeps Peter remembering as he continues that half-awake, half-sleeping travels down memory lane. Maybe he's remembering the old days of leaving his hometown of Bethsaida and traveling along to Caesarea Philippi, known for its fresh spring water. And along the way, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter perhaps remembers with a smile on his face that he had a moment of clarity. That maybe the Spirit revealed to him something he didn't know before. But he blurts out to Jesus' question, you are the Messiah. And suddenly, everything seems to fall into place for him. He gets it. He finally gets it. That this man, Jesus, has revealed God's heart to him. And so he's no longer that man catching fish in a rickety boat. But now he's a follower, a disciple. Back then on the road, there was no time for Peter to catch his breath before Jesus shakes him to the core, describing a future not of triumph and shalom, but of suffering and death. But so sure is he in his newfound recognition of Jesus as God's chosen one that Peter pulls Jesus aside to set him straight. And in response, Jesus doesn't thank him for his wisdom or his advice, but rather rebukes Peter in front of everyone, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind on human things, not divine things. Peter was stunned. And that was yet another moment in his life when his mind was changed, when what he thought he had figured out had been yanked away from his reach, and instead he's left with some uncomfortable truths and more questions than answers. So I invite you to hold in your mind this image of Peter nodding off in the early afternoon sun, waiting for that call to lunch. And were he playing this thought experiment with us, surely Peter would also think back to that last night of Jesus' life. The memories of their meal together and of Jesus kneeling to wash his feet. Would that be a moment that Peter would mark as a point in which his mind had changed? Was it then that he finally understood this love that Jesus had been calling them to? Those words from John's gospel we heard this morning are some of Jesus' parting words to his closest followers. This is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you. And I wonder when those words truly sink 
in for Peter? Was it when suddenly by the light of a fire he realizes he's denied his friend not once, but three times? Or when Mary tells him about the empty tomb and he races as if his life depended on it, only to find grave clothes folded at the edge? When did that commandment to love become not just words, but his new way of living in the world? Was it on that day of Pentecost when the Spirit pushed him and all the other followers out of their closed-up room and out into their neighborhoods? Or was it that day on the temple steps when he and John saw a man crippled sitting by the gate and together they restored him to health? The writer of the Gospel of Luke and of Acts wants us to know that one of those moments of realignment for Peter was up there on that roof in Joppa. There he's dozing off. Do you remember the details? He's dozing off and he sees a sheet lowered from heaven with all sorts of creatures in it, all of which were non kosher for him. He was restricted from eating any of them. Peter, an observant Jew, would know that all too well. And three times the sheet is lowered, and three times Peter refuses to eat. And three times a voice says to him, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. It's a dramatic scene in the Acts of the Apostles, one that will change the course of Christian history. And I suggest we see it not as an isolated moment, but as one in a series of experiences which form a new Peter, far different from that fisherman fixing his net by the seashore just a few short years before. That Peter would never have responded to such a disturbing vision by inviting the men sent by a Roman centurion to spend the night with him in Joppa and then return with them to Caesarea to meet Cornelius. You see, all of those previous experiences of Peter with Jesus have paved the way for him to stand in the house of Cornelius and say, I get it. Now I truly understand that God shows no partiality. Or as Eugene Peterson's translation, the message puts it, God plays no favorites. It makes no difference who you are or where you're from. If you want God and are ready to do what he says, the door is open. Too often we tend to think of faith as a one-time decision. Perhaps at our baptism or when we join a particular church. But Peter's story offers us another way of imagining our faith. One of process and discovery. One of making mistakes, of changing one's mind, of having our ways of understanding God and the world challenged, enlarged. Of being as Peter was on that day in Caesarea in Joppa, interrupted by the Spirit. Peter will come from Cornelius not only with his mind changed, but as an advocate. 
Soon he's called up before the other apostles in Jerusalem who criticize him for eating with Gentiles. And there, Peter will set his feet firmly on the side of radical hospitality as he retells the story of his own reorientation. Peter will become an ally and a strong witness for the inclusion of Gentiles into this new beloved community that God is forming. Those last words of Jesus in John's gospel, the commandment to love one another, at first had a focus only within the church. They were to practice love in the house church with each other as a clearly defined community who's in and who's out had already been determined. But in the book of Acts, the spirit is restless and pushes us beyond the tight circles we draw for ourselves because spirit is rushing in, breaking down divisions, revealing our common humanity, challenging all of our assumptions, and pushing us to practice the love Jesus called us to. The philosopher Iris Murdoch offers us this definition of love. She writes, love is the extremely difficult realization that something other than oneself is real. Love is the discovery of reality. Jesus says, this is my command, love one another the way I loved you. And Peter has these moments when his mind is changed, when what he thought about God and God's love was radically altered. That's part of the journey of faith for us. It's not measured in how firmly our feet are planted, but rather how expansive our love becomes. So when has the Spirit interrupted you? What moments in your life has the Spirit used to expand your imagination, the way you understand God or your relationship with God? When has your status quo been interrupted by the urging of the Spirit to enact God's radical hospitality? The book, Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed, tells the story of the Reformed pastor Andre Trokma and his wife Magda. Trukma had been educated at Union Theological Seminary in New York City in the 1920s, and then he returned to France to minister in La Chambonne. And as World War II unfolded, that town, that whole community became a place of shelter for Jewish children who were fleeing the Germans. And over the course of the war, 5,000 lives were saved. Trukma had grown up with the horrors of World War I, and he had learned over time to see the German soldiers from that first war that he encountered in those days, not only as enemies, but also as victims of a horrific war which maimed and killed soldiers irrespective of the uniforms they wore. He learned that they were human beings, just like the French soldiers he knew. And that realization would change his way of understanding and would help shape his embrace of nonviolence as the way to follow Jesus. 
Once when the authorities demanded a list of the Jewish residents of the town, he replied, I do not know what a Jew is. I know only human beings. One evening, the village's chief of police and his officers appeared at their doorstep with the intention of arresting Trukma and sending him away to prison camp. But before this could happen, his wife Magda invited them all, the police chief and his officers, in for dinner. When asked later how she could sit down with those who wanted to harm her husband, how could you be so forgiving or so decent to them, folks would ask. The book says that she, quote, always gave the same answer. What are you talking about? It was dinner time. They were standing in my way and we were all hungry. The food was ready. What do you mean by such foolish words as forgiving and decent. The Spirit moves in our lives, always at work in us, always calling us to learn, to grow, and yes, to change our minds. And through the power of the Spirit, we learn to practice forgiveness, what it means to be inclusive, to welcome, to practice justice. Thank God for those moments of holy interruption, for all of the ways, big and small, that the Spirit is at work changing our minds, freeing us so that we can fully live the commandment of Jesus to love one another as I have loved you. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.